What an incredible joy it is to be with you this morning as we together celebrate, acknowledge, recognize, worship Jesus as our Savior and as our resurrected King. Can I get an amen? amen. This together we are here as the body of Christ to declare in unified voice that Jesus is alive. Because it's this, this conviction that is at the center of our faith. It's this awareness, this belief, it's the governing reality that not only forms our hope for the future, and it does do that, absolutely, but it also more immediately defines our, our life in the here and now. That the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed is here and that we are a part of it. We have confidence in this because some 2,000 years ago, a group of women went down to a tomb in order to tend to a body and found that the stone had been rolled away and that the, the tomb was empty. They were questioned by some angels there in that space. You heard Daniel read that just a moment ago. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? So here this morning, and to borrow the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians 15, we are here to pass on to you as of most importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. The resurrection of, of Jesus is the truth that seeks to totally transform our lives. It was true for the disciples, and it tr it's true for, for those of us who seek to live as an apprentice of Jesus some 2,000 years later in the western suburbs of, of Chicago. Completely different circumstances, completely different culture, shared foundational reality that Jesus is alive. Today, my hope for us is, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, we, we've been in a series called Road to Resurrection, and uh, John Dixon over the last two weeks has done uh, just a fantastic job. In fact, if you weren't with us, if you didn't see the last two Sundays, I encourage you to go back and watch them on, online. But he really talked about evidence of the resurrection. Is, is our belief in the empty tomb, is there evidence for it? Is it a blind faith? And John just did a, a great job um, demonstrating the evidence for the resurrection and then talking from the story of Thomas about the experience of, of doubt or skepticism and being encountered by the real risen Jesus. And so that's where I want to pick things up this morning. My hope for our time here today is I want to really kind of press into the question, what is the power of the resurrection in our lives? If, if Jesus has been risen from the dead, if the grave is empty, then what is the implications of that on, on our lives in the here and now? Because just as it did for those disciples, it does for us. Think for a moment, if you can, about a, a time or an experience that you had personally where you met somebody or, or heard about somebody and you formed kind of a, a first impression of them. And we all do this, right? Like it's kind of human nature. You form this idea of them. And then over the course of time, that idea, that impression, those assumptions and expectations that you had of the person began to change and shift. A couple years ago, my, my wife and I were with a, a group of people, and 
one of the guys in the group began to describe his, his first impression of me. And I, he was talking to my wife. And he was like, when I first met Sterling, he didn't wow me. I was like, oh, rude. Uh, like, I'm more of a, a long-term project. I'm, I'm conscious of that, right? But he began to tell Sherry kind of as he got to know me, things that he valued and appreciated about me, right? And, and so the question that I'm asking us to consider this morning as we think about the resurrection is how does that happen? What, what does it take? What does it require in us for those, that first impression, those assumptions and expectations, how is that radically changed? Because today I want to look at the example of, of two disciples who had a very formed understanding of who Jesus was, what he was here to do, what he was going to accomplish. And, and it would not be until they encountered the resurrected Jesus that, that they began to understand the truth of who he was. Right? That their, their impression, their assumptions and ideas about who he was would begin to change. And for them, it's it's on their way home from Jerusalem to their town in Emmaus. So this is in the Gospel of Luke. This is immediately following what we just had read. So this is the same day where the disciples have gone down to uh, the tomb. They've discovered it empty. There's a lot of confusion, excitement, but also fear that's going on. And here we hear the story of these two disciples who are on the path home, on the way home to their village in Emmaus. This is verse 13 of Luke 24. It says, Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is the dis this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. One named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened in these days? What things, he asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth who was a powerful prophet in action and speech before God and all the people and how the chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, the, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb. And when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who are with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they didn't see him. Like this, this portion of Luke's gospel is this encounter with the, these two disciples as they're heading back, they're going home to Emmaus. Like it reads almost like, the, like a first century version of an uh, undercover boss, Right? Like, Jesus shows up here. If you've ever seen that show, like, there, there'll be, like, a CEO or a CFO, something like that. Some head of a company will disguise himself and go work among kind of the employees of manufacturing and the warehouse or in sales or whatever it is. And it's, I want to get a pulse or a feel kind of on 
how things are going, what's the culture like, or what changes need to be made. And Jesus here shows up amongst this group of disciples, these two disciples, who are walking in, and yet they don't recognize him. It says in the Greek that their, their eyes were kept from seeing him. So they, they see him, right? They, they know there's someone with them. They're walking with him and talking with him. They see them. They see him, but they don't see him. You follow me? These two disciples were in Jerusalem for all that has unfolded over the last few days. Their journey back to Emmaus, to their home village, for them and their hearts and minds is one of defeat. And we don't have, the text doesn't give us all of their backstory, right? But we, we can assume as disciples of Jesus that at some point in time along the way, they had heard Jesus preach the good news that the kingdom of God had arrived. Like they bought in. At some point in time, they were likely there when they saw Jesus perform a miracle. And they probably stood in all of that. They may have been there the moment when, when Jesus reached out and, and crossed every cultural boundary and touched a man who had been covered with this infectious skin disease. And instead of, of Jesus being contaminated by his disease, something extraordinary happened. And, and the cleanliness and the purity of Jesus actually transferred to him. They were likely there in witnesses. At one point in time and another, they heard and saw things that had convinced them that maybe, maybe, just maybe, he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. We hear the hope in the, their voice there and, and what their expectation, their assumptions were, and therefore their disappointment. And just a week earlier than this, right, Jesus is paraded from Bethany into Jerusalem. He, he is lauded as the king. There's shouts among the people of Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. So not only do we have this idea that, that just perhaps, just maybe that Jesus is the one who's going to redeem Israel, but this seems like the moment, right? Like it's all going down. And then there was an arrest, a, a mockery of a trial, and then ultimately a crucifixion. So they're on their way home de defeated and disillusioned. And then the resurrected Jesus shows up on the road and, and meets these disciples in that place. And he's like, well, what are, you, what are you guys talking about, right? Like, did you notice that? Look again here. Like, this is just so Jesus to me, like... They answer him in verse 18, the one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened in these days? Right? They're, they're describing the things that happened to him. What things, he asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, his powerful prophet in action and speech before God and all the people and how the chief priests and leaders, they handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. We, we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Right? Who, they're saying who we believed Jesus was and what we believed he came to do, we were wrong. And just, just pause there for a, some, 
for a second. Do you ever find yourself in that place? Do you ever find yourself in, in, in a circumstances and situations where your expectations and assumptions of Jesus don't match up with your experience of Jesus? Do you ever find yourself in the condition of these disciples where you feel like you're kind of walking this path out of defeat and, and a little bit disillusioned, disoriented? Right, but the problem is Jesus begins to meet them in this space. The problem isn't that Cleopas and his friend had believed too much about Jesus. The problem is that they believed too little. There, there's a lot in the surrounding context that is, has shaped and formed their idea of redemption. First, remember that, that we are in Jerusalem. They're there with Jesus for the celebration of Passover. And they know because they've been taught the story their entire life that the very first time that the word redeemed is used in, in the Torah and the scriptures is in the book of Exodus in relationship to the exile, right? Where, where God shows up in these extraordinary ways and he's going to free his people. They know the story of Pharaoh and the kingdom of Egypt and how it had enslaved and oppressed the people. They know that, that Pharaoh was obstinate and that he refused to set God's people free and that God moved in these works, in these acts, in extraordinary fashion and ultimately to secure their freedom. So this is their, their idea, their understanding of what Jesus is going to do. On top of that, it, the text tells us that they were returning to their village of Emmaus. And, and uh, Emmaus, historically, was the area, the location where uh, Judas the, the Maccabean, if you're familiar with the story of Hanukkah, what, what's remembered in Hanukkah, where he led a revolt against the, the Syrians, like this was, this was where that all went down, where they did experience this, this window, this temporary season of freedom from their oppressor. So their idea of redemption, their understanding of what this looks like, is all shaped by their impression of, of the exile and, and what they had, the story they'd grown up with in Emmaus. They're looking for Jesus, the Messiah, to be a Moses, to be Judas the Maccabean, to, to come and to overthrow Rome and to free the people and to restore order. And then on top of all of this, right, the, earlier that day, things have just gotten weird. They said, on top of this, there's this group of women went down to the tomb and they were there to, to care for the body and the tomb was empty and they claimed they had this vision of angels that said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Some of the other disciples went down and, and checked it out and no one knows where he's at or what's going on. And so we are, we're just done. We're out of here. We're confused. We're disoriented and... And what we had hoped would be Jesus' mission, his purpose, right, has ultimately failed. Israel is still occupied by Rome. We're going home. But now the resurrected Jesus begins to speak and to reveal that, again, that their hope is not, the problem is not that their hope is too big. The problem is that it's, it's too small. And so what Jesus does is, is he begins to retell the story. 
right? It's, it's hope retold here. Look again in, in chapter 24, picking it up now in verse 25. Jesus begins to speak. And he said to them, how foolish are you? And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Sometimes when Jesus needs to be, he, he gets direct, right? Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. I love what Jesus does there. He retells the story and essentially with these disciples, he's helping them see and understand this has always been the plan. This has always been the way that God was going to work and move to restore his, his people. Now, my, my grandpa Moore um, loved, he was like a big storyteller and he'd love to kind of tell the story of how our family got to where we were. And uh, when I was a kid, we went to this small church in a little town on the very western edge of Ohio called Eaton Church of the Brethren. So it was a Brethren denomination, and my grandpa liked to tell the story of how we became as a family, how we got connected to this Brethren church. And he said that when his family had bought this plot of farmland, his parents, my, my great-grandparents, on the very edge of Indiana um, and Ohio, the border there, one Sunday morning, just after they had moved to this new, new house, um, they were going out to start the Model T to go to church. Now, my grandpa was the 15th of 16 children. So I'm trying to imagine, how do you fit that many people in a Model T? But, um, and he said that they got the car running and it was warming up and they're all heading out. And his mom, my great grandma, opened up the, the screen door and yelled at the boys and said, turn that car off. And you see that church up the lane that you can walk to, that church will do just fine. And grandpa said, then that's how we became brethren. <laughs> Jesus here is he begins to lay out for these two dejected and defeated disciples like his vision of redemption. He, he begins to show them the, the victory that, that he would win, and it's not going to come as a result of a violent uprising against Rome. In fact, quite the contrary. Rather than, than Jesus coming to win a battle or to kill the Romans, Jesus is going to offer himself up to be killed, right? The Exodus story of Moses is not something that Jesus is distancing himself from. In fact, it is his vision of redemption. But this time, Jesus is not coming as Moses. He's coming to be the Passover lamb. Right? If you're familiar with the story in the book of Exodus, you know that when God is, is bringing these series of extraordinary events on the people of Egypt to convince Pharaoh to follow him in obedience, to let the people go, right? there's one last act where God's judgment is going to descend on the land as a result of the disobedience. And there's only one way out from underneath that judgment, that there would be the sacrifice of a lamb that would be made. And they would paint the blood, and I know in our kind of like modern mind, this sounds grotesque, but follow me here for a minute. They would paint the blood of this lamb on their doorposts. And this doorpost, this blood on the doorpost would be a sign that they were under God's protection, his coverage. They were covered by the blood of the lamb. See, this is Jesus, his vision of redemption. 
It's, it's not that, that he came to be Moses, but rather that he came to be the lamb. He would be the sacrifice that would cause God's judgment, his wrath to pass over under which we are found to be secure. And notice how he starts here. He says, how foolish are you? How slow to believe that. Again, there's like a, uh, uh, a Hebrew idiom in here that it's like slow of heart. Like Jesus is pinpointing the problem for these disciples. He's saying, guys, this is what I've been telling you the whole time I was with you. And more than that, this, this is the entire story of Scripture. This is what God has been doing from the very beginning, from Moses and the prophets. It's all been leading to this. This has always been God's plan, that I would come and I would live the life that you could not live and take on the death that you deserved to, to, to die in order that you might be free. Luke's gospel doesn't get specific about the, the, the passages that Jesus takes these disciples to, that he points them to. But in my mind, I sort of imagine Jesus starting in the book of Genesis, reminding them that the serpent in the garden who had created enmity, right, he had broken the, the, the bonds, the relationship between God and humanity, that, that while that serpent would strike his heel, he was there to crush its head. I imagine him taking them to Isaiah chapter 40, where the prophet talks about one who would come to prepare the way for the Lord, for the Messiah. And God, guys, do you remember John the Baptist? Do you remember what he said? I imagine him going to Isaiah 61, where it talks about the promise of a deliverer, to Psalm 118, where the psalmist is, is telling the people to prepare the way to receive the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Or maybe he goes to Daniel 7, where he talks about the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Or maybe he just simply went to Isaiah chapter 53, where he says, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. This was always the plan. You see, he didn't come to redeem us from Rome. He came to defeat a far more ancient enemy. He came to crush the serpent in the garden's head and to free us and to redeem us from the power of sin. This was the mission that he would accomplish. And he wouldn't do it by taking a life, but rather laying his down. And so for that and these disciples and their experience of them, then, then they begin to discover their hope restored. They begin to discover their hope restored, now picking it up in verse 28. It says, they came near to the village where they were going. And he gave the impression that he was going further, but they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening and, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together and said, the Lord has truly been raised and appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road. 
and how it was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Again, let me just, I want to I ask you to that initial question that we began with. It's, when was a time, when was an experience you had where you had this, the expectations, assumptions, a first impression of somebody, and then you discovered that, that you were wrong? Like, what, what did it take to get there? Was it not an encounter with the real thing? Was it not time spent with that person that, that began to say, oh, wow, what I, how I viewed you before, what I understood about you, that I was wrong. Like there's, a, there's one from our end, right? There's a degree of humility that is required in that. But it is an encounter with that person that begins to change and shape you. And look what happens here. Look at verse 30. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. What is, what is Jesus doing here? When was the last time he broke bread and gave it to his disciples? Right? Three days earlier. As he celebrated the Passover meal with them. Right? The very symbol that he had given them to internalize his purpose. The very thing that he had left them with. That would describe for them the nature of the victory that he had come to obtain. He hands them the bread and look what the text says. It says that their eyes were opened. They, they have now encountered the resurrected Jesus. They recognize him. And what's the result of this? Right? They, this, is, this is why our hearts were burning inside us the whole time that he began to describe and talk about the scriptures for us. They, they, they pick up and they return to Jerusalem. They begin to tell the rest of the disciples and everything that they had seen and experienced. The vision they had of Jesus, his vision of redemption and victory. It's all been upended. Their lives have been upended because they encountered the risen Savior. And now instead of leaving in defeat, they return with purpose. The church historian Yaroslav Pelikan says this, um, and I think it, it sums it up so perfectly. He says, if Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. He's essentially saying what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not risen, then our faith is in vain. And here's what I, I want to, to leave you with today. That Jesus tells his disciples they experience as they receive this bread and they their eyes are opened right that the same divine power that returned his life now lives in them and those who follow them and he sends them out to go share the good news of his resurrection life news that still holds true for us today god's love is stronger than death and his kingdom has no end in the old hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, there's a part where it says, Were every realm of nature mind, my gift would still be far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You see, when you and I, when we encounter the resurrected Jesus, 
when, when we are convinced that the resurrection happened and that the grave is in fact empty, we're brought into the place where Jesus completely reorients our lives around his purpose and his kingdom. See, today, because Jesus is alive, because of the power of the resurrection in our lives, it redirects you and I to the living, redeeming Jesus. The Jesus who stated purpose in his own words was that he was coming that we may have life and have it to the full. In short, right, the resurrection changes everything. It reorients our entire lives around him and what he came to do and what he would accomplish. When Jesus, and this is my invitation to you today, when Jesus was with Martha and Mary, and, and they had lost their brother Lazarus. He had passed away, and Jesus was going to do a miracle. But if you remember in the Gospel of John, this is Jesus' words to them. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and, whoever, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I have great news this morning, church. Jesus is alive. Would you pray with me? Father, we do just come in the recognition that it is the power of the resurrection that completely reorients and redirects our lives. It gives purpose and meaning. That because in you, we have new hope and new life. And so here today, Lord, we want to recognize and acknowledge you as the risen Savior. Lord, we want to surrender to your kingdom and to your purposes. Because it is that same power that rose Jesus from the grave, that overcame death, that dwells inside of us. Lord, you are, in fact, our Redeemer. You have defeated the enemy. We have life in you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen? Amen. He is our resurrected King. You know, if, if you are um, around here uh, somewhat frequently, one of the things that we try to do as a community is to point each other, to redirect us to the resurrected king. Because I can tell you in my experience, right, I can go back to operating out of some of those expectations and assumptions that I've created for him. And I need to be brought back to, to his resurrection. On your way out today, you're going to get one of these cards. Our ushers will hand it to you. It's just got some opportunities that we've got launching over the next few weeks. We'd love to have you be a part of. If you've been wondering this whole morning, like, well, what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with our lives some 2,000 years later? Uh, Paul wrote a letter to the Colossians, and it is going to speak into that for us. We're going to start that next week, and, and you are invited to that. Uh, if you're new, stop by our welcome desk. If you came prepared to give today, our generosity boxes are by the side door. We're so grateful uh, for the ways that you participate in that with us. And if you have questions or need prayer, um, our team is available up front here as well. Now receive this morning's benediction. Go in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who completely reorients our lives. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.